You're listening to Q&A Over Coffee. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for obtaining accounting, tax, or financial advice from a professional accountant. And you went to school undergrad where? UW-Eau Claire. And, grad- and law school at? University of Wisconsin. So you're a Wisconsin guy. Uh, went to high school, and but mostly I was born in Minnesota and lived here most of my life. Where did you look, grow up in Minnesota? Uh, Twin Cities, Minneapolis, Richfield, St. Louis Park, and then we moved to Chicago suburbs for a few years, and then my father bought a retail store in Eau Claire and uh, went to high school there. And Is there any law in your family, or are you it? No, no. I was actually the first in my family to tell my grandparents to, on my father's side, none on my mother's side, to ever go on to college. Welcome to the Olson Thielen Q&A Coffee podcast. So we're here today with Randy Sparling. He's a partner uh, with uh, Fellhaber Larson. Been practicing law for 40 years. And he, he hails from uh, schools in Wisconsin. And he tells us that he's grown up in Minnesota. I'm Tom Pesch, your host this, this afternoon. And we're going to talk about a very important uh, topic called the beneficial ownership info reporting. So many of our clients have heard about this and we've had a lot of um, press relative to the requirement that businesses now have to report in ownership. And Randy's going to give us some of the detail. He's going to clarify what this means for us. And so welcome, Randy. Thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. Okay, so we we just recently, just yesterday, or was it the just uh, late last week, the Minnesota Secretary of State sent a email to businesses alerting them to this new requirement. Now let's talk a little bit about it. So this beneficial ownership info reporting. Tell us first of all, what is it? And it was the origin or the outcome of the Corporate Transparency Act. Give us some perspective about how this has come about. It's actually been pending for some time. In 2021, the Corporate Transparency Act, uh, sometimes referred to as CTA, was um, adopted. Um, And its context is it was intended to strengthen some existing regulations that were out there at the federal level for a very long time. Um, It goes back uh, 30, 40 years ago to something called the Bank Secrecy Act, where um, they had uh, currency transaction reporting in transactions involving $10,000 or more. And things that were targeted towards money laundering uh, to uh, provide reporting information to law enforcement so that they might be aware of, of what's going on. And then more recently, with the advent of terrorism, the Patriot Act uh, came out um, and as well as bolstering to AML, anti-money laundering laws that have been there. And those are all things which were well known among uh, those in the securities industry and banks and such. So this is all uh, old school stuff for them. But the CTA approach was, let's try to give some more strength to the gathering of information by requiring uh, business entities to file a report with a Treasury, United States Treasury agency called 
for short, FinCEN. It's the Financial um, Crimes Enforcement Network um, is where the FinCEN. And fin you see financial. the office out of Washington. It's actually on their letterhead. It's U.S. Department of Treasury. And so FinCEN is the, the agency that's going to, it, it's, I, it, I often think of them as being uh, kind of a IRS in development there. It's also part of the Treasury Department with uh, the FinCEN being more focused on the gathering information for um, applying the laws to prevent money laundering as well as uh, funding of terrorist organizations. So like IRS version two? Mm, yeah, perhaps, except they're, that's a money gathering. This is a money tracing. <laughs> money gathering versus tracing. So so I guess what I'm, what I'm hearing from you is that this has been brewing for quite a while. Yes. And um, I remember vaguely some of these references you make, the Bankers Secrecy Act and um, things of that nature from school but a long time ago. But so this is a relatively new... Uh, awareness for the CPA industry and for the clients. Do we expect anything more than what's happened? Where are we on the timeline? Do you think it gets more severe going forward, or is this kind of where it might end? Well, that's that's a good question, Tom. The the, the where we are in the timeline is it's been coming for some period, and the immediacy of it is that as of January one of the new year. Any company which is formed, organized, that's going to be subject to becoming um, a reporting company, somebody that needs to file with FinCEN information, um, they'll have 90 days uh, with from the point that they're formed to be able to make their report. And that's a submission, and I'm sure we'll be getting into what that involves. So new entities, and so naturally, the the incorporators or the originators of the new businesses are going to be able to tag that kind of on their on their checklist. Hey, a new uh, client comes in, they do a new startup, a new incorporation. They're not only going to do the articles of incorporation to make it a federal tax ID number. I mean, we get involved in that with in correspondence with a lawyer. Then now you'll punch the button to register with FinCEN? I don't know that it's going to be a punch the button. What you're going to have to do is log in to the, the system that's... Um, supposedly created, but it's not uh, accessible at this point. After the, the New Year's, it will be. Um, and that's the point where they'll begin to be taking um, the reports, submissions to them. So um, it, it, the initially, there was the 30-day time period that was contemplated from formation of a company until they, they'll be obligated to report. They... Um, relatively recently extended that to 90 days, uh, which I think is good, and that's going to be applicable for all of 2024. But once we hit 2024, that's going to revert back to the originally contemplated 30. And you asked about, are we done here or what's going to be happening? One of the parts of the, the, the act was to require ongoing reporting to Congress so that they can evaluate um, the effectiveness or the burdensomeness of this and maybe make some adaptations and adjustments as we go along. Yeah, so I would I would think from the reading that we've done and from what we've heard so far from the media that whenever we have a new uh, accounting standard or sometimes a new tax act, the Congress takes it in and they, they kind of boil it down, they look at it, and then they might make tweaks. Do you think there's a good chance they would make some tweaks to this? 
I think they should. I think that after they get in and operating under it, um, they can make a determination, is the juice worth the squeeze? Yep. Is the burdens that are being put on here, is the information that's being gathered adequate or justified to the, the costs associated with maintaining and administering the program? And I think we can probably all understand that with the global currencies moving as fast as they do, or the global um, coins or... I guess the currency moves as fast as it does. I mean, you can transfer money offshore, inshore. You can move it around the world in a matter of minutes. And it's become a global community. And I think the Congress is trying to get a handle, as you said, on their ability to determine who owns what and what the impact of all this movement in and offshore. I suspect they're not really concerned with, you know, somebody moving out money from a suburban bank to a, to a downtown Minneapolis bank. I don't think that's really their to deal, but I don't know. I yeah. don't know. No, I mean, the, the, the data is going to be gathered and it's going to be maintained supposedly under heavy garden key by FinCEN, uh, but access to it is going to be limited, as I understand it, to law enforcement agencies. It's not going to be something that they're going to be turning around and selling this information to someone that's going to use it for their marketing purposes. All right. So let's talk a little bit about, so we have a one, one, 24 start date. So let's talk about who, who is affected by this. And it like big business, small business. Is there a natural partition as to who, who, who is affected on this? Well, there are partitions out there. I don't know if they're necessarily uh, natural. Um, the, uh, one of the, the gateways that you, you stand, if you're looking at it, actually just Got a call this morning from a, a, a prospective client who his daughter has a business, um, and his understanding is she's a sole proprietor. Uh, the prospective client has his own subchapter S corporation as well as a limited liability company, and that his son has a limited liability company of his own where he operates, his son operates his business. And um, interestingly, um, if the daughter's business is done as a sole proprietor, she hasn't filed uh, papers to create some kind of legal entity. That's, as I say, the first gate. If the, the, the path you take through is that this is you are not filing uh, a document to create your organization, if you're instead created by just somebody hanging out their shingle and operating a business, um, that's they're not a reporting company. Additionally, you can have a, a, a trust, which is created by a trust agreement, or you can have a partnership, which is created by a partnership agreement between those that are going to be involved in the partnership. However, if you have a general partnership and then you file with the Secretary of State to become a limited liability partnership, or the traditional limited partnership where you have a general partner and then you have limited partners. Those, uh, in order, they are, they're governed by the partnership agreement, but in order for them to exist, they are filing a document with a secretary of state. So this it sounds as though the trigger is if you're filing with the secretary of state, you're kind of in the soup. You, you, you are, that's the first gate. Okay. Then, then right. we have a whole raft of 23-some exemptions out there, which um, indicate if you qualify for one of these exemptions, then um, 
there's there's a back door that you are not going to be a reporting company. And what was the purpose of the exemptions? I know that uh, I've seen some text on the online around that, but what's the what's the purpose of that? Are you suggesting that Congress has some reasons and <laughs> thinking behind their legislation? Well, I would think that they're trying to, to lead us somewhere. <laughs> I'm not sure where, but uh, I I think my my view is that uh, a number of the exemptions are tied to the fact that you're already dealing with an organization that has some degree of a regulatory oversight. So um, you have um, publicly traded companies that are filing uh, their reports and such with the Securities and Exchange Commission, they're exempt. You have banks and credit unions uh, that are chartered by a state or federally, those are exempt. You have those engaged in the securities industry, broker-dealers or the security exchanges, and then even clearing agencies. Those are all subject to SEC regulation. And so oversight. it kind of sounds like highly regulated, highly monitored businesses, and it's not all inclusive. But they're probably going to escape the the detailed reporting on this potentially, right? Because they've already they're already covered, as you say. And so what remains on this this LLC, LLP, and I I just want to ask, and this will include like a small S corp, yes, and a small C corp, correct, and. I don't know anything else that you file would at the Secretary of State. I don't know what that'll be. You've got LLC, LLP, S Corp. That's pretty much covered. It's corps, and the, yep. the tax election really determines whether it's S or C. I mean, um, you, you can have some unusual ones like a real estate investment trust that files a REIT. Their, yep. their, their chartering instrument with a little. Um, most of those are, are more like a trust where they're created by, but they, they may have some kind of filing or not. So, for purposes of the middle market client group, if they're a standalone, small law firm, small clinic, a small manufacturing company, when I say small revenue, anywhere from two to 50 million or whatever the, whatever you think, and they've got two brothers owning the business and they're an S-corp, they're likely going to have to file, aren't they? Well, um, that's the, there. I have some detailed ex- exceptions where there's, uh, the, where there's a little bit deeper dive you need to take uh, to figure out if you're one of those 23 exemptions you qualify for. Um, uh, Some of the others that are in that category of being regulated is federally registered investment companies and federally registered investment advisors. That's a little bit of a tricky one. I work securities practice as well, so I'm aware of the fact that you have the smaller um, uh, investment advisors who may be state chartered uh, rather than federally registered. So there's a there's a split off there. But if you're federally registered as an investment advisory firm, then you're exempt. But if you're a state chartered uh, advisor, then you're uh, a registered advisor. You're not. You're not in, unless you reach one of the other exemptions. All right. So let's just agree that there are certain exceptions, and they're typically uh, highly monitored or regulated in reg- regulated industries, banks, securities, credit unions, um, publicly held companies, not to be all inclusive. Um, all right, but then there's all the rest. Say, say it's you and I that, and we own a professional services firm. Um, let's just play for a fact that I'm a lawyer. So we have a two person S corporation law firm. Um, we probably would have to file, would we not? It depends upon how good we're doing. How does that work? 
The um, There is an exemption for what are referred to as large operating companies. Assume we're small. If you're small, then you're you're going to be a reporting company. Okay. Because we we just know from the Olson Thielen practice and, and maybe the Fellhaber Larson practice, you guys probably, I don't know if you guys get into giant companies, but we have some large companies, but a lot of our businesses are small. A lot of our listeners are probably small business people. And I'm just trying to give them some uh, direction. You know, if it's a if it's two brothers and they're manufacturing uh, widgets out there and their revenue is $10 million and they're just kind of working it and they're doing well and they got a manufacturing facility over here in Roseville, they likely will have to do something with this, either determine whether they're exempt or determine whether they have to report at a minimum. Right. I, I the the starting point is always uh, let's let's see if if we are a reporting company and we're a reporting company because again back we had to file something with the secretary of state to come into existence. Then we go into looking to see if we qualify for one of those twenty three exemptions. Um, there are some of those exemptions that are pretty simple, and then there are other of the exemptions that have um, multiple requirements that you have to satisfy. Now, I, I looked at this uh, prior to this discussion, and this looks pretty nasty when you get into the details. The I mean, devil I, I to definitely that. dances in the details under the CTA. Yeah. I, 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 was, I was not aware that it was this detailed and that there was this much snag um, potential for us like a small business. All right. So let's so let's just for a second then um let's assume that we have to report. So what needs to be reported for a typical small business? Well, the information is is filed and reported by the reporting company. Okay. And let's use company with big quotes around it because that may be a corporation, it may be a limited liability company, mm-hmm. okay. etc. Um you you need to you'll log in to the uh, FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network Agency of the Treasury, and they'll um, you'll do this online, and you'll be, uh, I'm assuming, hasn't gone live yet, I'm assuming it's going to be one of those that you fill in the, 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 the screen and the fields, and then you're going to have to, at some point, upload some documents. But the information that's reported is the legal name, and any trade names that the company uses, the address of its principal executive office, the jurisdiction in which it's formed, and that may be, uh, typically that'll be a state if you're chartered by the state or if you're chartered federally, or you might be something that is a uh, foreign company that's uh, doing business in the U.S. Backing up a bit, a foreign company gets caught when they in order to be able to do business in a jurisdiction, uh, they file um, uh, to transact business. So if, uh, if we, you have a company that's from Denmark that has uh, an office in St. Louis Park that they're going to establish and they're going to be here and they're going to have presence, they have to file uh, qualification documents with the Minnesota Secretary of State. And that triggers them now becoming a reporting company um, and that could be either uh, they might do that by way of it being a subsidiary that they established to go and actually form a domestic uh, Minnesota corporation to do that, or they may just qualify the the, the Danish company um, it, it itself. So you've got that jurisdiction, 
of its formation um, or registration. Then you file, you include their taxpayer identification number that's assigned um, by the, the IRS. If it's a foreign company that doesn't have a, a United States taxpayer identification number, then you use the number that they have from assigned to them by their jurisdiction of origin. Uh, then you get into, you have to identify capital B beneficial, capital O owner in big quotes. Uh, and that's definite. So we get into definition time again about who constitutes a beneficial owner. The last piece of information that you have to file is the capital C company, capital A applicant, the company applicant. Um, each of those beneficial owner, a company applicant are defined terms that there's a whole lot of definition and identification regulation. One of the things that frankly tweaks me about this is you've got uh, a large business out there that's going to have uh, a well-established staff and and know what they're able to do and 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 yet those that would have the capacity to be able to do this conveniently, they're exempt. They don't have to. The burden is really falling upon um, those 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 smaller companies. Now, and I know we we skipped over a little bit what the, the complete definition of the large operating company. But if I may, I'd like to go back to Absolutely. talk about that. Absolutely, it's an entity that has uh, twenty or more full time employees. Okay. And it has uh, an operating presence at a physical location um, where gross receipts or sales are, are generated in the United States. Um, and the reported $5 million or more in gross receipts in its prior tax return. So you talked about a $2 million company and a $10 million company. There's a $5 million um, point in there between. So the, the $10 million company, as long as it's got 20 employees, is exempt. But if it's a $2 million company, even if it has 200 employees. That brings a big sigh of relief, to be honest, because, you know, it doesn't take much for a business entity to get to $5 million plus. I mean, if you got a couple of uh, some, some pretty talented management and 20 employees, that's a pretty, you know, that's not a huge organization, but it doesn't take long to get to 20 employees. So just to, to clarify, they don't have to report. Right. That's a big deal. It is. It's, it's important for our listeners to understand that, that, that they've got a, a C-Corp, an S-Corp, an LLC, or LLP, and they got excess of $5 million and more than 20 employees. Do they have to match both those or just one? Both. Both. Okay. So I'm just thinking through the clients that I work with on a regular basis and just firm-wide. That, that will alleviate a lot of the pain for a lot of the clients, but it doesn't take away the pain for the small business folks. Right, and then that's what I was saying uh, as to the, the thing I find a little bit unfortunate about this is the burden is really upon the smaller guys. I, I, one would like to think that there's some kind of idea and purpose behind it, and I guess the idea and purpose behind that is if you're a real company out there with substantial operations and whatnot, in that instance, the chances of you being involved in money laundering or in funding terrorism is less. But it, for those that you know have watched the Jack Ryan movies and such, yep. where you know they're they're tracing and trying to figure out uh, where the funding of the terrorism is coming from, it's always going to involve use of shell companies and whatnot. So that's where um, they they may be. That's perhaps uh, what's 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 happening here. 
But unfortunately, um, for the few bad apples, you got to have a lot of them get squeezed and turned into apple juice. And we know from experience that from an internal control standpoint, oftentimes when you have the more employees you have, that means that you have less chance for, should we say, improprietary or shenanigans or or not, unless that the organization is clearly set up for the sole purpose of money laundering or um, other illegal activity. You know, and some, but you know, people can get you know big. Organized crime can get pretty organized. Sure, and it wouldn't be, you know, they hire accountants and lawyers to to do things that are illegal. I hate to say that. Maybe they're not licensed, but maybe that's um, um, maybe that's an editorial. But they can do things that get organized in a hurry. Indeed. Uh, okay, so so that's a very important distinction, and thank you for putting that out there because that will that partition should eliminate a lot of reporting for some of the middle market clients. Right. So maybe some of the bigger firms, accounting, law, um, professional services, maybe they're not so concerned, but you know, we have a, whole, a lot of small business and so it matters to us. Um, now, let me go back to something. When ownership changes, once we have a client get registered at FinCEN uh, and new business say they uh, they incorporate on January 2, 24, and they go along and then through a 24, and then at the end of the 24 year, they make uh, they, they ask someone to join them as a shareholder, assuming they're reporting. That shareholder trigger, that's an event that requires reporting. Can you can you enlighten us on that? It depends. Or am I wrong? Am I, okay, it depends it on depends. what. It uh, depends. First of all, the, are they a beneficial owner? Uh, and there's there's two sides to that. You have beneficial owner because that means you're you have the the ownership interest. Uh, the beneficial ownership is uh, uh, based upon a percentage of ownership. So if you're if somebody's less than twenty percent, they're not a they're not a reportable beneficial owner. They're an owner, but they're not a capital B capital O beneficial owner defined term. Does the delta need to be twenty percent, or that's when they reach the threshold? When they reach the threshold. Okay, so if I have a business that's uh, I'm a 50% owner and I get offered 10% more stock, I go to 25%. Right. That's going to trip the trigger. Yes, and I'm sorry, I said 20%. I meant to say 25%. Okay, 25%. Yes. I, I personally do a lot of buy-ins with uh, strategic stuff with clients, and so that's interesting. And so if, if we trip the trigger on ownership change, then we have a- Update that you have to file. An update. And what's the timing of the update? Uh, you have 30 days from the change uh, to go back in and update your report to establish the identification of the, the new ownership. And with respect to identifying the beneficial owner, you need to give their full legal name. You need to give their date of birth, their street address, which can be residential. Uh, if company applicants, people that work for the company, they can use their work address. Uh, unique identifying number that's issued to them, um, which would be a uh, driver's license, and you've got an image, a document, a, a U.S. passport, state driver's license, other identification document issued by some state government or a federally recognized tribe. I saw on the list, Social Security number is not part of that list, is it? Or is it? No, it is not. I wonder why that is. I mean, it doesn't, I mean... I know when I renewed my driver's license of recent, I had to upload various documents, and I remember the process. Um, I assume that driver's license was for one of those uh, positive ID yes, driver's licenses. Yes, it was yeah, enhanced, where you have to, some sort of enhanced. Yep. Yep. 
So the ownership change, so let's just assume for a second then the ownership changes in December of 24. Mary started my business on the 5th of January and I, I made a new partner I, and we offered them 25% shares. So we tripped the trigger. December 15th, we have 30 days to deal with that. Then do we have to report on an annual basis or is this a once it's set, it's set? Once you make your initial filing, you're set unless and until you have a reportable event by a change. So this is really very, I hesitate to use the word transitory, but it's transactional once upon a time. And then it's only required if you change the deck chairs, so to speak. Right, Tom. That's interesting too, because once we get over this hurdle, it's not like an ongoing tax return, it, unless you're consistently always moving shares and you're tripping the trigger over the, the 25% level. But 25% is not the only thing. Okay, what else is there? You can be in a control position because you also are a um, a sub person in substantial control of the organization. Okay. So that would be uh, executive officers. So if even if you're not a 25% owner, if you're the president of the company or somebody who's exercising that type of authority, that makes you a uh beneficial owner for reporting purposes. You could own zero ownership interest, but if you're in a position uh, by your corporate authority or whatever is your position with your company to be making those executive level decisions, chief financial officer, chief executive officer. This this has uh, hints of the responsible party into the IRS payroll tax area. Sure. Where if even you could be a non-owner, but if you don't pay the payroll taxes and you had the ability and you don't, you could be on the hook. Um, conceptually. The, I, I, con I, but isn't there something in in terms of that, if you're a member of the board of directors, um, you're not a responsible party, but if you're, if you're a member, if you're a board member, but you super, you're on the committee that supervises things, you might be, um, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to say I've had very little experience with this because I'm always very candid with the clients. If the payrolls if you can't afford the payroll taxes, then we're not paying payrolls. Then we're out of business. I mean, we have to everything to just stop the miracle round, because we've seen situations where they get out of hand, and the only the, the old kind of the adage is that payroll taxes can follow you into the grave. It's very very problematic. It, it's it's really nasty topic, because unlike your bank, if you miss your payment, um, the government may not be quick to get back after you, but. When they when you are on the radar screen, they come at you hard. Okay, so one last question, then we're going to wrap this up because we don't want, we only typically like to go a certain time because our listeners are busy and we only want to throw too much at them. What if we fail to make the reporting deadline? What's going to happen? Well, uh, it's typical federal laws where they have all kinds of potential penalties that they can assess against you. I would hope that the United States attorney in seeking to enforce those would um, look at it more that you're one of those innocent parties that's caught in this reporting web. Um, and if you get your stuff in at some point, even if it's late, um, hopefully they're not going to do a whole little harsh things at you. But we, we haven't got any reporting companies yet. It starts January 1. But uh, that remains to be seen. But the the, poten the penalties are potentially severe, daily fines and such for per days or being late on things. But um, we'll have to see what they actually end up doing with that. This kind of has the hint of the Finbar 
which is the financial bank account or the foreign bank account reporting, where if you fail to report certain accounts, you can get significant penalties. And what comes to mind is a $10,000 penalty. Um, or imprisonment for not more than two years. Yeah. That's, you know, that's a, it's, it's got some teeth that we determine how sharp they are and how, how, bar, how badly they want to bite. That's, that's to be determined yet. Okay. So kind of in sum then, so we've got some new regulations starting in January. Uh, if i if you have a new entity originated after one one twenty four, you have ninety days to report. They're going to want to know who owns it, but there's a partition, kind of like parting of the waters, big and little. The little folks are going to have to deal with this somehow, and they're going to seek advice from you, legal law firm, Fellower Larson, perhaps, and others. The CPA industry generally is is not believing that we have uh, a responsibility to work in this area because it's more of a legal uh, articles of incorporation, uh, ownership issue, kind of um, somewhat like the MSS one, but just the AICPA has has taken a kind of a position and so is the Minnesota Society of CPAs that the CPAs ought to really be asking legal for help because it's got some legal legalese stuff to it. So so we got a one one twenty four. We've got reporting required. Maybe it applies. Maybe it doesn't. I guess it's like a lot of things. We would always tell our clients to seek advice, seek competent advice. I'm sure you'd be willing to help Randy Sparling at um, Bellhaber Larson. Um, what else can you leave us with? I guess the other thing is that th- there's also a three hundred sixty five day clock starting on that date, and that's all entities formed before twenty twenty four have to report, but their time to report is in calendar year 2024. So they've got time, but it's, uh, don't put it off. Uh, best to uh, get yourself organized and take a, well, starting analysis, am I a reporting company filed with a secretary of state or something like that? Yes. Am I exempt? If I, the answer to that is no, then you have to start figuring, let's gather the information in, in it's two lists of information, information regarding uh, the company itself, we talked about the information regarding those who are beneficial owners, either through ownership, 25% or more, or by way of having control position. And then uh, then you report. So that that's not, that doesn't seem quite so problematic then that, you know, the new, ent- the new entities that are set up in January, the legal ought to be able to catch those and get those on the clock. Right. On the, on the timing. And then we have a whole year. So as the clients go through the cycle to file taxes, to do to transact business, hopefully they'll catch it. And I know Olson Thielen, uh, with our marketing professionals, that we're communicating with clients, and we've already seen information, as I said at the top of this uh, podcast, that the Minnesota Secretary of State has sent out something. And the only reason I know that is because one of my partners, Greg Nelson, had forwarded to me a communication he had gotten from one of his clients that you know we're, we're, uh, we're kind of on notice. The clients are on notice that they have this new requirement. Yep, and that is, I think, part of what's going to be done with all Secretary of States when they, uh, after the first of the year when they form, because it, in the FinCEN information, they talked about that that starts the clock for you to, to have that 90 or later on 30 day once you receive notice that you're in. I'm assuming that they're going to have the link to where you would need to, to do that stuff. And, but for the those that are already in existence, it's one of those um, potentials with, that if you don't get on it, uh, y- you may miss it and go through 2024 without catching on. Oof. And the state rules are all the same because it's a federal law. Right. It's federal so law. So there's no distinction with the states. Okay. Well, 
for our listeners, that's a lot to chew on, but maybe that gives us a, I mean, I'm a little less, um, uh, I have a little less anxiety over this because now I understand a little bit about the small business folk versus the larger business folk and the existing clients have this one year to comply. And we know that almost a hundred percent of the time we, we tell clients new, new clients that want to set up a new business, we always get legal involved. So we're hoping that competent legal advice will, will trip the trigger to, to get the new reporting. So maybe the process will will eliminate uh, mistakes and misses. And so the clients won't have as much pain around this. Uh, and hopefully they don't get drawn into the penalties. So Right. And, and, and I, I can understand and appreciate somebody being a little bit concerned. I'm giving all this kind of information where it's going. But uh, trust us, worth from the government. <laughs> Oh, gosh. So they always said, when the government shows up and says, we got you covered, they should be concerned. Okay. Well, with that, I think we're going to leave it. So one last question. So this is the Q&A coffee. How do you like your coffee? Do you drink coffee? I do, but I haven't had any yet. Oh, my God. Did you want some coffee this the, today? No, thank you. Okay. Well, all right. Well, thank you again, Randy uh, Sparling from Fellaber Larson. And uh, I'm Tom Pesch with Olson Thielen. And we're going we're gonna to leave it at that. Thanks, Tom. Thank you for coming in. Check out all of our Q&A over coffee episodes on the Olson Thielen website. This is also the place you can go to be notified of any new episodes and submit your suggestions for future topics. You can also find all of our podcast episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon. Be sure to follow Olson Thielen on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.